Welcome to Studying the Song, a podcast to help musical theater actors figure out what to sing and how to sing it so that you shine in your audition, one-woman show, or leading role. My friends, talent and passion are only the beginning. I believe there is freedom in preparation. I believe that when you put in the work, practice the skills, and do the research, something amazing happens. You become so prepared in your craft that you become unstoppable. In this podcast, I want to give you the tools and skills to create a powerful audition book that showcases your artistry and actually gets you work. I want you to feel totally at home reading the musical score of a show, and I want to help you define your unique artistic voice. Consider me your own personal vocal coach in your earbuds, cheering you on and bringing you the reality checks you need along the way. I'm Corey Yamaoka, and I'm so excited to be walking this journey with you. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to Studying the Song, the podcast that helps musical theater singers figure out what to sing and how to sing it so they can shine in the audition room. I'm your host, Corey Yamaoka. Welcome. Uh, Today, we're going to be doing a show breakdown episode all about the musical Little Shop of Horrors. Now, this musical was written by Howard Ashman, lyricist, um, and then composer Alan Menken, and it's my favorite musical of all time. And yes, I did just do a whole episode last week on Howard Ashman, um, but I thought it was time for a show breakdown episode, and I love Little Shop, and it's really where my head has been, so I decided to do it on this show, Um, and it has been so fun, like really diving into the score. I have the full score for this show, um, and just like dissecting all the lyrics and listening to the music, so um, I hope that you enjoy it. It might be a show that you know well. I'm I'm going to be hopefully offering some things that you don't know about the show today. Um, It just so happens also that the latest off-Broadway revival just reopened last week after being shut down because of the pandemic. So they opened on September 21st, uh, which is the date that's in the opening prologue where they say, on this day, the 21st day of the month of September, et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't plan this timing. It all just sort of happened to work out. So thank you, universe, for that. Uh, Before we go any further, I just need to correct a mistake from that episode last week about Howard Ashman. I had said that he wrote Smile and then Little Shop, but that is incorrect. It should be the opposite. He wrote Little Shop and then he wrote Smile. Okay, so that's that. For Little Shop today... I think every show you kind of have to find the way into it, the way of understanding, like what is the sort of central conceit of the show? What are the storytelling conventions? And that means that every show breakdown that I do is going to be slightly different in format. Um, So what I want to do today is I want to look a little bit just at like the creating of the musical and some of the people that were involved. So like the team basically. And then we're going to look at, I've been really fascinated about I want songs and what does a character want and how does that drive them to make decisions throughout the rest of the story that propels it forward. And I just think that Ashman is really good at doing that. And he wrote the book as well on the show. I should mention that. And so it's, it's interesting to see like, what does he choose to musicalize? What moments become songs? And that's something I've always been fascinated about and, you know, really wanted to find more books that like taught me like what, what moments when you're writing a show can be turned into song or should be or work really well, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to kind of talk about that, go through the song list. And then, um, 
Then I'll pick out a few songs and talk about the music of it and the sort of the artists and the the pop um, music that's being referenced in this show. The show is a rock musical based on the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, popular doo-wop and Motown music. So again, I'll get more into that later, but I can't go through the entire score today. We would be here all day. All right. So as I said, the musical's written by Ashman and Mankin. Um, Ashman was really the the driving creative force behind the show. He comes at it as the librettist and the lyricist, and he directs the show. So he has a very clear vision of what this story is, and it's an adaptation from a film um, of the same ni- of the same name from 1960. And he saw that when he was a kid, and he thought it was just like the coolest, funniest, weirdest story. This like black comedy you know, funny horror film about the flower shop worker Seymour who raises a plant that feeds on human blood and flesh. And the movie was not hugely successful, but he loved it. Um, and you know, it became a, a cult classic to a small following. But at this point he decided for some reason, like that's the next thing I'm going to put on stage. That's what I'm going to musicalize. And everybody that he told like thought that he was crazy. It's a terrible idea. Um, but he got um, Alan Menken on his side. They had already met and worked on a- another show together. So they start figuring out how to musicalize this show. And at first, the um, original score was very like kind of jazzy and quirky, kind of like a lot of 1960s films were at that time. And what sort of made their adaptation gel was when they really said, you know, this should be like the dark side of Greece. This should be doo-wop, Motown, and that should be the style that every single song is written in. And that is indeed what they did, and they did it very well. I'm going to assume that you sort of know what the basic storyline is. Um, In a nutshell, Seymour wants to be with this girl named Audrey, who works with them at the flower store. He finds a strange plant, takes care of it, The plant promises him all of his dreams will come true if he'll just feed the plant human blood. He does, and the plant ends up eating everybody and taking over the world. (laughs) So in Howard's words, this show satirizes science fiction, B-movies, musical comedy itself, and the Faust legend. And if you're not familiar, Faust is the story of a scholar named Faust who is sort of tired of his level of power and knowledge and he ends up making a deal with the devil and the devil will give him all of these things that he wants but only for an allotted amount of time after which the devil will claim Faust's soul and he'll be enslaved to him forever so you can see the parallel you know that that Audrey too is like that devil character making the deal with with um, Seymour and in the end indeed wins and takes over the whole world Um, You might want to know that the original movie is different than the Broadway version um, in the ending about who dies and who lives. So in the original 1960, Mushnick and Audrey survive and it's Seymour that is eaten. But they decided to change it for the off-Broadway show. So the 82 off-Broadway show, Seymour and Audrey and Mushnick and Orin all get eaten and um, the offshoots of the plant grow into bigger plants and keep consuming more humans, etc. And then when the musical was actually made into a film in 86, which is how I came to know this show, was watching that with Rick Moranis, 
Um, Seymour comes in when the plant is trying to eat Audrey, saves her, electrocutes the plant, and Seymour and Audrey move to that dream house in the suburbs that Audrey talks about in Somewhere That's Green. So if you're only familiar with the Rick Moranis film version, um, that is not how the actual musical ends. And that's a really good thing to know if you're watching that as a reference, um, that they tried out the original ending and audiences didn't like it. So there you go. Um, the show was a huge success off-Broadway, something like the third longest off-Broadway run ever. It ran for five years. Um, again, they wanted to move the show to Broadway, and Ashman said, no, this belongs in a smaller space. This belongs in, a, in an intimate place. It's a quirky, weird story, and you want that close interaction with the audience. But in 2003, the show did end up on Broadway. And sort of went through this tumultuous development and during out-of-town tryouts, the um, the cast was fired and the director was fired. They got almost an entirely new cast and, um, and obviously a new director. And it was actually successful on Broadway. But I think that's probably because it had already been a huge success for like 20 years. And in that revival, um, it featured, um, what's his name, Hunter Foster and that recording is the one that I am in love with when Hunter Foster is singing Seymour. I think he's so good at it. Oh my gosh. The original one is good too, but I just haven't spent as much time listening to the original off-Broadway cast. Um, the show has actually been revived in many different formats and they've done a lot of different kinds of casting with this. In the original, Seymour's played by Lee Wilkoff, who's like this kind of short balding man. And he plays opposite Ellen Green as Audrey, who's this tall, very thin blonde. So the look of them together is sort of like Laurel and Hardy-esque. So there's like that comic duo contrast by just looking at them. And I think that there's something to that when casting the show. Ellen Green really like made her career on this show and has played it a jillion times. She was in the 86 film off um, opposite Rick Moranis. She recently did, um, oh my gosh, in 2015, I think Encores did it and um, she played, she was 64 and she played opposite Jake Gyllenhaal as Seymour, which, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I don't want to spend like this episode judging casting, but it's just interesting. And then this recent revival that I was just talking about started with Jonathan Groff as Seymour and then it's reopened last week with Jeremy Jordan. So it's like become hunkier and hunkier dudes, which is kind of funny. I mean, people can act, they can change their persona, all of that, but there is something to like finding that essence of the sort of underdog in Seymour. And I don't know as I see that in Jonathan Groff and Jeremy Jordan, um, but they definitely have beautiful voices and I know that they're singing the score really beautifully. Other inventive casting has been done with the plant. The plant is usually a puppet that's voiced by a man, most often a black man, but not always. Um, and it's recently been voiced by Amber Riley of Glee fame. Uh, and that was at a, in a production at the Pasadena Playhouse. And then also in 2018 in London, the plant was played by live actor Vicky Vox, who is a drag queen. So no puppet 
Um, I think when it's like little plant, it, there was a puppet. And then once the plant is big enough to talk, that's Vicky Vox doing her thing, which is very f- funny and wild and a new interpretation that I think um, a lot of people are going to start playing around with. So that's sort of what to know about how this piece is put together, who's playing it, and uh, a little bit about the storyline. Let's get into these characters a little bit more now. Seymour is our main character. I already told you he's sort of an underdog. He's an orphan. He's a klutz. He's taken in by Mr. Mushnick, who owns a flower shop. And he is not charismatic. He's not popular. Life is hard for him. And he says all of these things about himself, actually, in the opening number, Skid Row. And he is in love with Audrey, who also works at the flower shop. And she's his idea of the perfect woman. She's sweet and good and beautiful. And his primary want is he wants to be with Audrey. That would just be his dream come true. And that's what drives all of his action for the entire show. Now, Audrey, her want, first part of it, is that she wants to get away from Skid Row. And out of this relationship that she's in, where she's being abused and not taken care of, you know, she's being taken advantage of. So she wants to live somewhere that's green is what she says, right? That's her I want song. She wants to live in a tract house in suburbia on a little like cookie cutter cul-de-sac is what she wants to live. That's her want. Seymour believes that she deserves that. He wants to rescue her from the terrible relationship she's in. And he wants to get the girl. So those are the two biggest wants of the show are Seymour and Audrey. For Mushnick, he has, he's a pretty big driving force in this show also. And he owns the flower shop. He's taken Seymour under his wing, but he treats him terribly. He doesn't really like him. He keeps him employed, but he's almost, he's always almost firing him, right? Gives him a place to sleep in the basement. But his main motivator is money. He's greedy. He wants his flower shop to be successful. That's his major want in the show. And that's important to know because once the shop does start flourishing, he starts to take advantage of Seymour and he wants Seymour to be his adopted son. And he sings this song called Mushnick and Son. That's what they're going to name. They're going to rename the flower shop after. And it's sleazy and it's not sincere and he doesn't love Seymour and it's purely just a business move. And all of that is reflected in the music and the way he sings. That Even though he's saying these nice things to Seymour, it's in a minor key and it sort of sounds slimy while he's saying it. Um, The plant, Audrey 2, is fairly passive for most of Act 1, but once the plant gets big enough that it can talk she can talk, it can talk. Then you find that the plant actually has a driving want in this show as well. And what the plant wants is to grow up big and strong enough to actually propagate, propagate, yes, and have little plants get sent out, little cuttings sent out into the world. And then they're all going to grow up and basically dominate the world and and be eating humans. World domination is what the plant wants. Of course, it's kind of like that movie... um, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. I is that does anybody know that from like the late 80s? I was like very small when that came out. So the plant has a major want, and the plant's want manipulates Seymour's want. So the plant wants to 
get disseminated into the world. It's going to use Seymour and this flower shop to gain popularity. Seymour's going to feed it. He's going to give Seymour all the things that he wants, right? This Faustian legend, you're going to have success. You're going to get the girl. You're going to have a dad. You know, you've been an orphan, but you're going to be in a family and you're going to belong. Plays on Seymour's desire, his want, and Seymour falls for it, right? And then after he starts getting this success, starts to realize like, oh no, what am I doing? I don't want to have to be killing people to do this, right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about how that happens when we go through the songs in a second. So the wants affect each other. I think that's important to know. Seymour wants Audrey and wants to get the girl so much that he's willing to kill people. And then once, even once he realizes that it's getting out of hand, the, the worry about losing Audrey and that she's not going to love him if he doesn't have the plant and the power supplied by the, pant, the plant, that he, he continues to do it. And in the end, that means that he loses Audrey. Audrey dies. And that he himself loses his own life trying to kill the plant. He you know jumps inside and he's trying to hack it with an axe or whatever and gets eaten by the plant himself. So his desire is so intense that it ends up killing all of the other characters, which is why it's a black comedy and a farce for sure. Like, hopefully this wouldn't actually happen. Um, And then Audrey's want is interesting as well. She really gets what she wants as far as getting to be with Seymour, that nicer guy, the one that like treats her well. And in the end, when she dies, she, she doesn't get straight up eaten by the plant. She gets maimed. Seymour saves her. And when she's dying in his arms, she says, feed me to the plant. I'll always be with you. And when you take care of the plant, you're going to be taking care of me. And I'll finally be somewhere that's green, which is this like sick comedy, you know, completion of her story is that somewhere that's green is actually becoming plant food. So the you have to be clear on what the want is when you are writing any story, right, for all the characters. And what's interesting about the show is, about any show, is that the wants conflict with each other. And what are the choices that people are being willing to make? Good choices and bad choices. How do they affect their own lives and the lives of the people around them? How does that all interplay? That's the drama. That's the story that we are interested in watching. So now let's just talk a little bit about how does Ashman musicalize the story? What happens in each of the songs? Because I'm a student of theater. I'm a writer of musical theater. And I want to know what this genius thinks. So we're going to go through each number and just give a very concise summary. What happens in that number that moves the plant, the moves the plant, moves the plot forward? So here we go. In the prologue, this is just sort of the urchins. I didn't even talk about the urchins. They don't really have a want. They are the convention of the storyteller. They're sort of like a Greek chorus. They move the story along. They're kind of like the fates in Hadestown almost. Um, So they sing the prologue and it's a hello audience. This is going to be a wild ride. That's all it is. Then we get the opening number Skid Row. This is an establishing number that um, gives us the place that we're at. It introduces Audrey and what she wants to get out of Skid Row and Seymour and what he wants also to get out of Skid Row. That's sort of the base of their want. And then more specifically, she wants the tract house and he wants her, right? 
Um, they also diverge, divulge some of their character traits within that number. Next number, Dadu is the name of it. Seymour finds the plant, okay? That could have just been a scene, him finding the plant, but nope, they decided to musicalize it. There's background singers, and then he tells the story in dialogue. So it is kind of a scene and a song together. The next song is Grow For Me. Seymour is taking care of the plant, discovers by the end of the song that the plant likes blood, gives it a few drops of blood from his finger. And that begins the downward demise. Next song is called You Never Know. And this, we learn a little bit about Mushnik's character in the beginning and what he wants, which is just fortune and fame. And he's excited that the flower shop's doing well. And then we learn that the plant is the thing that is bringing Seymour some of the success and people are wanting to see his plant and interview him. So it's like, ah, the plant is doing something here because you're not supposed to really know that before you've seen the show, right? Next song, Somewhere That's Green. This is Audrey's full I Want song. Okay, listen to last week's episode if you want more info on that particular song. Next song, Closed for Renovation. This is a trio of Mushnik, Audrey, and Seymour. Flower Shop is getting a makeover because of all of the new success. Oh, things are looking up, right? Next song, Dentist. This is Oren's character song. It's a very... Um, Elvis, James Dean, crooner kind of tune. Very comedic. Mushnik and Son. This is where Mushnik convinces Seymour to be his adopted son. Next song is called Sudden Changes. In this song, Seymour recognizes he's getting one of the things that he wants, which is to belong to a family. The next song is Feed Me slash Get It. And this is where the plant offers the deal to Seymour and he takes it. So everything before this moment is just, he's raising the plant and the plant is giving him a little bit, a little bit to get Seymour hooked to the success. And then here is where it's the overt, you're going to feed me people and I'm going to give you everything you want, including Audrey. And Seymour takes the deal. Oh, tragic mistake. Next song, Now It's Just the Gas. This is where Seymour, Seymour follows through on the deal and he kills Orin. Ugh, his first murder so bad then we get the um that's the intermission act two begins with call back in the morning the flower shop is thriving seymour's really starting to get that fame and glory and success everything's happy everything's good this this deal isn't so bad suddenly seymour is the next song seymour gets the girl right Oren's out of the picture seymour gets the girl and audrey gets her nice guy Oh, wouldn't it be great if the show could just end right here and everybody just got what they wanted? Well, that's not what happens. Oops. Okay, next song is Supper Time. And this is where, you know, the deal with the plant is starting to get darker and darker. Mushnik is starting to suspect something and Seymour feeds Mushnik to the plant. Ooh, it's really getting out of hand. Next song is called The Meek Shall Inherit. Seymour is really getting the fame and fortune now, but he's conflicted because he can tell that like he's doing things that he doesn't want to do, but he commits so that he can keep Audrey. By the end of the song, like he's almost talking himself out of it, but by the end of the song, he's like, but what if, you know, what's going to happen if I lose these things and Audrey doesn't love me anymore? Oh, it's so sad. So then the next song is called Salmonex slash Supper Time 2. 
Audrey comes to the flower shop. Audrey Tour 2 lures her in to eat her. Seymour enters and stops it. Next song, Somewhere That's Green, Reprise. Audrey tells Seymour to feed her to the plant and she'll finally be with him and Somewhere That's Green. So sad. And then by the end of that, Seymour is so enraged that he decides to try to kill the plant and actually gets eaten by the plant in the process. And then the finale ultimo is the plant got what it wanted, world domination, and the the three urchin girls warn the audience, don't feed the plants or it could happen to you in your town, in your world. So that's like such a complete plot from beginning to end that's only happening during the songs. You don't even really need the scenes to understand the journey of the characters. You know, the scenes connect those plot points, they build the relationships, they, you know, flesh out a little bit more. But overall, you're getting all of the wants and all of the conflicts within the within the songs, excuse me. So that's why I love this show. One of the reasons is just so well written. Every song has a purpose to fulfill and it's done with such style and panache. So that's what we're going to talk about next. Okay, so let's talk music. As I said, rock musical based on the sounds of the 50s and 60s, um, doo-wop and rock and roll and early Motown. This is not the 60s of like Woodstock and psychedelia or any of that kind of stuff, okay? Um, There's a few nods to like Jewish cultural sounds like Klezmer inspired um, music in like Mushnik and Son, but most of it is really in that land of 50s and 60s doo-wop and rock and roll. Um, I will say that the recording I love is the 2003 revival, and they actually expanded the orchestra in that from the original. So they added brass and woodwinds and percussion. And it really just like, there's so many more colors that they can play with. And like the klezmer aspect in Mushnik and Son like is so much more um, lively because they add clarinet, which would have been, you know, appropriate for klezmer music. Um, I don't know. It just... It has so much more vitality and paints such a bigger world for them sonically. Uh, But the original is also fun in its sort of gritty, um, minimalist way. Um, Very much like Rocky Horror. I kind of, they're of a piece, even though they're written by different people. Um, So let's talk about each character and sort of the sounds that are associated with them. The urchins, which are really the first people that we hear sing in that opening prologue, the the urchins' names are Crystal, Chiffon, and Ronette, and there were actually girl groups in the 50s and 60s called the Crystals, the Chiffons, and the Ronettes. They did songs like, um, and then he kissed me, whoa, whoa that one and da do run 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 da do run run so there's an actual da do in a reference song that you know the da do actually is a whole song in this show be my baby was another song he's so fine one fine day there's also other groups if you're looking for like audition material for this the marvelettes who did mr postman um aretha franklin and respect that would be a great song diana ross and the supremes the Shirelles, um, what's that song that they did? Mama said, Mama said there'll be days like this. That would be great. Um, there's a Dusty Springfield song called I Only Want to Be With You. That also would be great for the urchins. So anything that's in that world, that three-part harmony world, and then um, like one singer kind of singing out those verses uh, would be perfect. 
Audrey now stays in in much the same world, but you can also draw in some of the like middle of the road pop music of that time period. It's kind of like toned down versions of that rock and R&B sounds of those days. So I'm thinking of people like Skeeter Davis, who sings um, End of the World, if you know that tune. Um, Brenda Lee, she would be great. She's got a song called All Alone Am I and Break It To Me Gently, which is this slow kind of like 12-8 song. Um, Again, more Dusty Springfield Uh, There's a song called If You Go Away. Sort of these sad songs. These are all like sad titles, like I'm Alone, Break It To Me Gently, If You Go Away. But it's the longing sense. I was trying to find songs that felt like somewhere that's green, which is really like positive. She's painting a picture of something positive, but she sounds kind of sad and heartbroken while she's singing it also. It's an interesting song. Um, Seymour is more, he's sort of like the crooner lead singer of the boy groups. So the boy groups like the Drifters, the Temptations, the Coasters, the Platters, the Penguins. Um, The Penguins, they did that song, Earth Angel, Earth Angel, would you be mine? And that, there's definitely parts in the show that that song is particularly comes to mind. Um, Dion and the Belmonts, a teenager in love. Why must I be a teenager in love? I think of that as being very related to the song Grow For Me in the show. Um, and they do that, I wonder why, in the still of the night. All of these sort of slow doo-wop. You know, doo-wop is based on, um, sorry, that 12-8 bum, 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 bum. Let me play a little bit of, a, of the common doo-wop progression for you guys. Okay, so that that chord progression, you might know it as heart and soul, but it's also um, Earth Angel, Earth Angel, would you be mine? It's that song. It's a bunch of songs. And uh, it's the one chord, the minor six, the four, and the five. So it's a little walk down. If you were playing it on the piano, it would be C, down to A, down to F, to and then up to G. C, A minor, F, G, if that, that's the whole chord. Um, sorry, I'm so tongue-tied right now. <laughs> so that foundation, that little bump up bump bump up triplet feel, which is actually 12 eight, eighth notes, and then that chord progression is referenced and used all over Little Shop. And it's definitely the mainstay of that doo-wop sound in all of these groups. Um, not all the groups have 12-8. Uh, they have songs in that, but they also do songs that are more straight 4-4. Uh, they still use that same chord progression. Um, I thought it'd be interesting also to talk about Oren for a second. And he is like over the top. He's comedic. I said he's kind of like Elvis and James Dean and his some of the musical styles of Elvis, but also like Jerry Lee Lewis and Great Balls of Fire and Splish Splash and that sort of over the top rock and roll entertainer. He really is um, a more presentational character. It's very tongue in cheek and he's really putting on a show when he's singing for you. And then Audrey too, the plant, totally different world. This is like Motown and funk, like early Motown, early funk. Um, I'm talking songs like the temptations, Papa was a rolling stone and can't get next to you. Um, Edwin Starr, 
his voice, I feel like, is one of the most similar voices that I heard, his interpretations. He did War, What Is It Good For? But he also does this song called Funky Music, Show Enough Turns Me On. Oh, let me tell you, you need to listen to that vocal. This guy is an amazing singer, and you can definitely hear the parallels in songs like Get It and Supper Time that the plant sings. I'm also getting vibes of like Barry White, Earth, Wind, and Fire a little bit, though they get kind of disco-y, James Brown, and even like Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye when they do the more soul-oriented pieces and not their um, more down-tempo. Marvin Gaye has a lot of like smooth-sounding vocals that he does as well, but when he does his more expressive soul stuff, um, that comes through and sounds like the plant. So those would be the musical references. You could listen to those songs when you're getting in the world of this. You could be auditioning with these songs, all of that. Um, Let's look at a couple of the songs in particular. I already said that opening prologue number, the urchins sing chiffon crystal and um ronette and this is like a straight up takeoff of the 1960s girl groups it's much riffier interesting in the 2003 version and in the original it's pretty staid s-t-a-i-d like pretty minimal um very interesting to hear how the vocal interpretations of those people and those characters in particular have changed in all of the different um recordings that are available Um, Skid Row. Let's talk about this. Okay. I love this number. It's a Latin rock groove and it's in the style of on Broadway. That song, they say the neon lights. I don't know the words to it, but you know the song. So it's, it's that like on Broadway is painting the beautiful picture of that world, the neon lights and the signs and all of that. Right. But this is Skid Row and downtown, and it's painting all the terrible picture of the place that these people live. It establishes our location. We are in a dark, dank, sad, hopeless skid row, and it sets the tone for everything that Seymour and Audrey are trying to leave behind. Um, And I wanted to look at some of the lyrics from it. The lyric, Howard Ashman, he's just like relentless in the rhymes and the lyrics that he just keeps like rolling out rhyme after rhyme after rhyme. So here's a couple. When he's painting the scene about downtown, it says downtown where the folks are broke, downtown where your life's a joke. You go downtown when you buy your token, you go home to Skid Row. And toke is supposed to, token is supposed to rhyme there. Then he paints the um, terrible scene of uptown. Uptown's just as bad as downtown. Listen to this imagery. Uptown, you cater to a million jerks. Uptown, your messengers and mailroom clerks, eating all your lunches at the hot dog carts. The bosses take your money and they break your hearts. And uptown, you cater to a million whores. You disinfect terrazzo on their bathroom floors. Your morning's tribulation, afternoon's a curse, and five o'clock is even worse. That's when you go downtown. So just like the unrelenting, like million jerks, Mailroom clerks, such a good idea there. Hot dog carts with break your hearts, come on. And then a million whores and bathroom floors. What a crazy juxtaposition. Oh my gosh. And then we get that little, that's when you go. And 
this little ba-ba-ba-ba is a total um, tribute to all of the guy groups, that bass that's that's present, that does, does those little like, um, tell me hoobie-doobie-hoobie-doobie-hoo, who wrote the book of love? That little low thing on the hoobie-doobie. Um, I might be making up those lyrics. Let me know if I'm wrong on that or don't let me know. Actually, um, there's a lot of songs where like one little line, the bassist sings, um, that pops out from the rest of it. I'm also thinking of, um, Duke of Earl, where you just hear the dude down there, Duke, 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 Duke of Earl, boom, boom, right. And you're just like, Oh, I love that low voice. So that is a tribute. I will say that in the, in the recent revival with Christian Borel playing, the guy that sings that line, he does a high tenor kind of goofy interpretation. And as from the music side, I get it. Like he's making it his own, but from the music side, I want to hear the low part because that really pays tribute to the era of music that we're talking about. Okay. So we get these two verses about downtown, we get uptown, and then the next verse introduces Audrey. And this is where we really learn about her character. She's complaining that the guys are drips. They rip your slips. Relationships are no go. You're like, oh, that's her in a nutshell. The guys are drips. Like, they're no good. They've got no future. They're ripping your slips. They're abusive. And relationships are no go. They're not going anywhere. These aren't the people that you want to marry. Interesting how concisely he paints her picture. And then the bridge, that now we get totally new music and Seymour comes in. So you're like, oh, this is something different, and this is our main character, right? He gets the new music. It's much more aggressive. We move into this driving uh, feel. It's not that Latin groove anymore. And this is what he says. I love these rhymes. Poor. All my life, I've always been poor. I keep asking God what I'm for, and he tells me, gee, I'm not sure. Sweep that floor, kid. So the poor, what I'm for... I'm not sure, sweep that floor. Amazing series of rhymes, again, unrelentless. And what a summation of him. Like, I've always been poor. Even God doesn't know what to do with me. And so I'm just going to keep sweeping. I'm just doomed to be this lowly flower shop guy, flower shop kid even. Um, So he's, he's so concise. He's so economical with how he can paint a character. And then you go back to the verse, the ensemble is singing downtown, and then Seymour starts singing this new melody. Show me how and I will, I'll get out of here. I'll start climbing uphill and get out of here. Someone tell me I still could get out of here. Someone tell Lady Luck that I'm stuck here. And it's this repetition. It's sort of like a revving of an engine. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's just churning in this little circle over and over. And after he sings it by himself with those amazing rhymes, Audrey joins in and they both start doing this kind of cyclical pleading. And it continues to build to the end. And the ensemble keeps just saying, downtown, downtown, with these long held out chords. And you're really like, oh my gosh, this place is terrible. But this number is so like full of razzmatazz and thrilling. And then at the final end, everybody's holding this big note and you just see on their faces like they really want to get out of here. So I think this number is amazing in that it establishes the world. It introduces the two main characters and who they are in a nutshell and what they want. 
and it's thrilling storytelling is thrilling music and it really establishes the um that 1950s vibe that they're going for okay i probably have time to do one more so the other one that i love is grow for me these are both towards the beginning of the show so i apologize for that um if you want to know more about somewhere that's green i'm not going to talk about that today but go listen to the one from last week and i talk about it in depth okay grow for me grow for me has basically that doo-wop progression okay actually let me back up da do is right before grow for me and the girls are singing and it's that total one, six, four, five chord progression. That's the same as heart and soul and earth angel. It's in 12, eight time. And it's got the quintessential the little girl background punctuations as Seymour is doing his dialogue. Then it, it almost seamlessly transitions into grow for me. It's in the same key, uses the same chord progression for a little bit, and then shifts when we go into the verses and it becomes more complex because musical theater, you know, we have more facility. These aren't just pop writers, right? These composers know like so many different ways of putting chords together and they're really exciting. So Grow For Me, this the content of this song is, it's a list of all the ways that Seymour has been trying to keep the plant alive. And it's in the style of a crooner that sort of that lead singer in the guy groups who's singing to his sweetheart, but he's singing to his plant. So it's like earth angel, earth angel, would you be mine? Except he's singing, I've given you sunshine. I've given you dirt. You've given me nothing but heartache and hurt. I'm begging you sweetly. I'm down on my knees. Oh, please grow for me. Right? And you're like, oh, that's so sweet. It does sound like the sort of like teenage love song where the dude's like singing to his love that he wants to be with. Melodically speaking, the highest note happens on the word hurt. So let's see, you're giving me nothing but heartache and hurt. So it's like, oh, I'm really crying out. I'm big. It stays on that pitch. And you're sweetly, I'm down on my knees. And on down, the pitch goes down. Like, come on, this writing, Mencken and Ashman killing me. So good. Um, What else? Oh, and then there's like one of my favorite lines in the show. He says, Oh, God, how I missed you. Oh, pod, how you tease. First of all, God and then pod, like a different way to call the plant. He's a pod. I love that. But I, whenever I only listened to this show and I heard, oh, God, how I missed you, I thought it was M-I-S-S-E-D, like I've been missing you, right? But no, it's missed, M-I-S-T, M-I-S-T. I thought, I never realized that from listening, but it's so clever. It's just yet another way that he's trying to water it and nurture it and get it to live. So inventive. Okay. Then we go to the bridge. And what's so cool about the bridge is that you start going through this series of chords using diminished chords. I'm going to play it for you in a second. And the bass line is moving up chromatically. It's ascending chromatically. And that sound, a chromatic scale that's ascending, let me play it for you real quick. Okay, that sound of an ascending chromatic scale is like the the telltale cartoon, like something is growing up out of the ground. 
And they use that in the baseline. It's very subtle, but it is there as like a storytelling melodic motif, I guess you could say, um, underneath what the chords are doing. As the ascending line starts to give you the feeling of growing, Seymour keeps describing more and more of his attempts to get the plant to grow and nothing's working. He's getting more and more desperate. And the line, the telltale line or that, you know, urgent line is, what do you want from me, blood? And then he pricks his finger accidentally on roses and the plant smells the blood and starts puckering up. And that's when Seymour gives it the first drops. So, and that sets the action for the rest of the show, as I've already said. So I love that the bridge where he's reaching his biggest frustration, what do you want from me, blood, has this uh, sort of tumultuous series of diminished chords that's also ascending and like growing in its own frustration. Like the plant is like reaching out to Seymour to give him what he wants. So let me play the chord progression for you. Okay, if you know the song, you're probably like singing along with that. So you feel that like bass really ascending. And then there's a moment where it it kind of goes back down, bum, 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 right at the end. So it's really starting to kind of like grow faster. Anyway, it's just like the best little musical echo of what's happening in the story right there. So then after that, he sings one more verse about I've tried all these things. And now if this is the thing that's going to work, I'll do it for you. And for him, it's just like a few drops of blood and it's not a big deal. But for us, we know the show that this is really the beginning of the end for him. This is going to make the rest, you know, it's going to make the rest of the show happen and he's going to die. All right. Nice way to end the episode. Y'all, I hope you enjoyed this. I felt a little bit all over the place, but I hope it was helpful and offered some new perspective on how to interpret this show. Um, I could go on for days, but I won't. If you find this episode helpful or you enjoyed it, share it with a friend, send a screenshot to them. Um, just tell them about the podcast and, and what you've been enjoying about it. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or send me a sweet text and I can put you guys in the next episode. I'll actually shout you out. Um, that's it, friends. I will see you next time right here on Studying the Song, the podcast that helps musical theater singers figure out what to sing and how to sing it so you can shine in the audition room. See you next time.